Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I'll never forget my first sermon. Um, probably, <laughs> probably because it was one of the most traumatic events that could have only been... Uh, um, only been uh, that uh, that that I could have I could have experienced. Uh, I, I don't actually remember very much at all about my first sermon uh, because I've tried to purge it from my mind as far as I possibly could. Um, I don't remember what I preached on. I, I do remember the circumstances though. Um, we had been to camp in summer of 1999, and the Lord really began to do a, a work in my heart at that camp. Confirmed that I was called into ministry. And uh, I came back from camp, which is always a good thing to do. It's never good to stay there. Um, came back from camp, talked to the pastor, told him what had happened. And, and he did something that I'd never, uh, never imagined. He looked at me and he said, well, you need to be ready to lead next Wednesday night. Say what? Uh, I, I, just got, I just figured this out. I'm not ready to, to lead something. He said, well, you got to start sometime. And so he gave me the opportunity to, to lead Wednesday night Bible study. And, and so we were meeting right back here in, in the choir room because uh, that was, we didn't have the fellowship hall yet. And so Wednesday night Bible study happened back in the choir room there. And, and I remember getting, getting ready for it. And, and the night came and, and I had my notes. I was ready to go to, to preach my very first sermon after the Lord called me to the ministry and called me to preach. And for the next 12 minutes... Twenty victims were subjected to the most forgettable sermonette that has ever been offered. Some of you in the room may have been there. I was trying to think of who, who might have been there uh, that, that 20 years ago, and, and I hope you don't remember it because you may uh, take back calling me if you remember back to that night. Uh, when I finished, I remember, I remember looking at the pastor who was now in the unenviable position of having to come up with something to fill the rest of the time with. Because, like, people came for it, right? So, so we couldn't just say, thanks for coming, you're gone 12 minutes later. I mean, you had, to, you had to fill the rest of the time just to make sure they got their money's worth, right? And so I looked at him, and I said, that's it. You know, I said, amen, it's all yours, brother. Uh, and so he, he got to come up and, and fill the rest of the time. Thankfully, I did get the chance to, to preach at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church again. It was just 20 years after the fact, and so, uh, so a lot of time has passed, and, and I can go a little bit longer than 12 minutes, and some of you think, amen to that. I think back to the very first sermon that I preached, and then I look at the very first sermon that's preached in the church, capital C Church, and I do think there's a couple of similarities. I was looking at it, I said, you know what, I could, there's some things alike here. For example, uh, both preachers were untrained. And never been and never preached before. I was untrained, never preached before, been preached to a lot, never preached before. Peter in Acts chapter two was untrained, never preached a sermon before. So I thought, okay, Peter and I are on the same page here. Uh, Peter's crowd responded, Brothers, what shall we do? And I thought, you know, that's how the crowd responded to me. Brothers, what do we do? <laughs> I don't think they meant the same thing though, for some reason. Thankfully, the very first words of the very first sermon preached in the Capital C Church will never be forgotten. They are recorded for us and still speak to us to this day. Thankfully, the words that I spoke in my very first sermon are long forgotten, and no one will ever, 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 ever remember it again, except for the day the Lord says, what were you thinking? Um, 
So t- today we, we continue in Acts chapter 2. Um, and so I'm not going to read the whole sermon, but, but I do want to read some of the key verses. I would encourage you to stand with me as we look at Acts chapter 2 in reference to the reading of God's Word in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke." The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And let's skip down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to us, even as it speaks through the words of the Apostle Peter. I pray, Lord, that his sermon presented to us today might have just the same level of impact, but in a different sense to us as the church already redeemed. God, may your word never come back in vain. May it always accomplish its purpose. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, as we look at this sermon, there, there's a few things that, that automatically stand out. And I think that when you look at it, obviously it's perfect because it's in the word of God, and so therefore it is perfect and it's inspired. I mean, obviously. But you have to recognize that the sermon that Peter preached was perfect for the context of the day. Again, the Holy Spirit prompted it. And so there was no doubt whatsoever that the Holy Spirit is speaking through Peter. Peter didn't have time to prepare any remarks. You know, it's not like he'd spent the last 50 days getting his notes ready. Like, I got a, I got a big, big preaching opportunity coming up. I'm about to have, to have to preach to thousands and thousands of people. I need to make sure I've got my notes ready, that I've studied, that I've done all those things. Peter didn't know what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. He had no time to revisit the Hebrew Scriptures and do some word studies. He didn't have that opportunity. It was very much that day an on-the-spot kind of moment. Somebody handed him a microphone, which they didn't need microphones, which just tells you how incredible that they could communicate so clearly to such a large crowd. He, he was given the opportunity to speak, and God moved in him, and he spoke in power, and, and people responded. 
I, we had a preaching professor when I was in seminary, and he would begin every class. This is the most terrifying thing that's, that, that happened to me in my educational process. He would begin every class with a, 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 everybody's name was in a fishbowl. And he would begin every class, he would draw out a name out of the fishbowl, and he would call the person's name out. And he would give that person a passage of scripture, and he would send them out in the hallway for 10 minutes. During that 10 minutes, they had to prepare a sermonette in which they would come back into class, and at the end of class, he reserved 12 to 15 minutes at the end of class for them to deliver their sermon that they had 10 minutes to prepare in the hallway. They had no resources except their Bible. They couldn't go get concordances. They couldn't do anything. It was very much a, 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 a trial by fire. And I will say I did a little bit better job in that class than I did back here in the choir room a few years earlier. But it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, the only good thing about that particular situation is that you were in front of a class that had 15 to 20 sympathetic colleagues. Because we were all brothers in suffering, right? Like, we all know we got to go through this, so we better be nice to each other, right? So we all knew we had to be kind to each other. The only person that was allowed to be mean was the, was the professor himself. However, Peter, instead of having 15 to 20 sympathetic colleagues to speak to, he had to stand and address a multinational crowd made up of thousands of people. We know 3,000 people were saved. How many people weren't saved? How many people heard and didn't respond? We don't have that number. And so Peter, on the spot, has to stand up and speak to a crowd literally of thousands of people. 99.9% .9 of preachers today have never spoken in front of a crowd with more than 500 people in it. Peter had to preach his first sermon to a crowd that literally had thousands, and they weren't all friendly. There were skeptics in the crowd. There were people who'd already said, what are these jokers up to? There were people in the crowd who looked at these guys and said, man, they are drunk as could be. And so there's already skeptics in the crowd. There's already people who think this is all suspect. And so Peter stands up and handles them brilliantly. He looks at him. He says, y'all, they can't be drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And on a feast day, they weren't allowed to break fast yet. And so the crowd, upon hearing that, guess what they would have done? They'd have laughed. This broke down the barriers because Peter just silenced all the skeptics because nobody was drunk that early in the morning. The crowd would have likely laughed. This was the first joke told in a Christian sermon. But as a consequence of this, of this sermon, the fire of the Holy Spirit breathed through the apostle Peter. It burned with white-hot intensity, and the response to this sermon is absolutely stunning. Don't miss the role of the Holy Spirit here. Fifty days before this sermon was preached, Peter could not find the courage to stand beside Jesus and claim him as Lord. Fifty days before this sermon was preached, when Peter was confronted about his relationship with Jesus, he used an expletive to demand that he had nothing to do with Jesus. That's where Peter was 50 days prior to preaching this sermon. Today, he's the spokesperson in front of a pretty rowdy crowd. Today, he's the guy who's got to deliver the message in front of a group of people that he had no idea what the reaction was going to be. Fifty days before this sermon, no doubt, some of the members of this crowd probably joined another crowd that was looking for blood, and they found it. Fifty days prior to this sermon, there was people in this crowd who likely stood by and watched as Jesus was tortured and murdered. Fifty days prior to this sermon, there were people who were in this crowd who likely celebrated as the Son of Man shed his blood. 
There were those who likely cheered his death. Fifty days prior to this sermon, some of the same people who celebrated the death of the Lord for carnal reasons were some of the very same ones who celebrated the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because now they were the beneficiaries of his atoning sacrifice. A lot can change in 50 days. It's a stage like has never been, and the fire of the Holy Spirit burned brightly as Peter's very breath, his words, conveyed that fire. So this morning I want us to not break this down into all its verses. We could spend a long time dissecting this passage, but I want to look at Peter's sermon from a very broad stroke perspective. Uh, Again, I would commend to you, take some time in the next week, read through this sermon, get you a good commentary, a good study Bible. Look at the verses, look at what's being said here, and work through these 27 or so verses. But I want us to see what this first fire-breathing sermon in the book of Acts has to teach us today. And the first thing I would say is this, we got to know what God says, right? We got to know what God says. And, and there's several places where, where Peter quotes Old Testament passages straight from memory. Again, he didn't have notes. He didn't have a scroll to unroll there. He does this straight from, from memory, which just tells you how committed the Jews were to the memorization of their scriptures. You know, it wasn't, a, it, it, we don't feel as pressured to memorize Bible today because the Bible's always accessible to us, right? I mean, if, even if you don't have a print Bible, the Bible's on your phone, you can go on the internet and see the Bible, you can see it in all kinds of different translations. So we don't have the pressure to memorize Scripture like they would have had the pressure to memorize Scripture, because it was really inconvenient to carry a scroll around of the, of the book of Genesis. Wasn't really easy to do, and so they, in order to compensate for that, for that difficulty, they would me, uh, use memorization as a, as, a, as a discipleship tool that we don't really use. Now, we are told that Peter's sermon was much longer. Verse 40 in Acts chapter 2 tells us that that Peter had a lot more things to say than were recorded, but Dr. Luke only gives us these 27 verses. And understand this, of the 27 verses that, that we're given in Luke's recollection of this, 11 of those verses are recorded for us as direct quotes from the Old Testament. Almost half of what's recorded for us are direct quotes from the Old Testament. And so the first quote is from Joel, the other two are from the book of Psalms. And so if you look at this sermon, and and if you're just trying to evaluate it, it's a scripture-soaked sermon for sure. I had a friend who was called to a Baptist church that, well, I'll just say theologically they they were left of center. And my friend was a, was a uh, he loved the Lord, he was conservative, believed the Bible, the inerrant word of God, every word of it. And he goes to this church and I thought, man, how'd they call him? I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that, that, that would fit, but my friend did not fit that church. I mean, he got there and he, he found out that he had deacons in the church that weren't baptized. Like, I don't know, that ought to be kind of an a, a entry-level qualification to be a deacon in a Baptist church, right? You've been baptized? No, Sorry. You know, you just don't quite meet the cut, right? He had deacons in the church that weren't baptized. And so my friend began to preach and teach the Bible faithfully. Well, guess what happened? As he began to preach and teach the Bible faithfully, it wasn't long before he didn't have any deacons who weren't baptized. Because they either got baptized or they said, I don't think this is for us anymore. And so they left. And so he was telling me after he'd been there for some time that, that he had come up for his annual evaluation from the personnel committee. And they gave him high remarks across the board. Great leader, you know, great pastor, loved going to, loved the church, all those sort of things. And then it got to the part about preaching and teaching. 
And they gave him low marks for preaching and teaching. And he said, well, why did you give me low marks? And they said, your sermons are too biblical. And he said, thank you. I will count that as a badge of honor. So he started, he's been been there for like 10 years now and still preaches and teaches faithfully. And guess what's happened to the church? Mostly they believe the Bible and affirm the scriptures and love the Lord and all that left of center stuff has kind of disappeared because that's what happens when you apply the test of scripture to it. It doesn't really stand the test very well. When Peter stood up to preach, he could have just done what what we like today. He could have just stood up and said, let me tell you what's happened to me. Let me me just tell you about my experience. Let me tell you about my feelings. Let me tell you about what what I've seen. And and that's what part of our problem is today is that so much of what we're basing truth on is, is based on how you feel about it or what you think about it or what your opinion is of it. And Peter could have done that. My goodness, can you imagine the stories that Peter told? You won't believe what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. You won't believe that day that he called me out to step on the water. You won't believe the things that I saw. You won't believe the dead that we saw raised. You won't believe the people that we saw healed. You won't believe what we experienced. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He was there. Saw all of Jesus' miracles. Saw the trial. Saw the crucifixion. Peter was personally in the tomb, right? Guys, it was empty. There was was nobody there, just the cloth. There There was nothing there. He shared a meal with the risen Lord on the beach. Peter had stories to tell, did he not? But Peter doesn't start preaching with, let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you about my feelings. Let me tell you about my opinions. Let me tell you about my thoughts. He stands up. And he gives them Holy Spirit-inspired insight into what the Word of God does. Again, verse 40 tells us that he bore witness, and so we know Peter told the stories. But he begins by declaring that they were living in direct fulfillment of the passage of Scripture from Joel. He says, he says, he realized that they are the direct beneficiaries of, of, of God's promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so when he stood up, he didn't stand up and say, you won't believe what happened to me. Instead, he stood up and he said, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Do you know what just happened? He says, the spirit of God has come in accordance with with the word of God. This is what God has said, and he says it is coming to bear on our current situation. The times we're living in are pretty interesting, aren't they? That's an understatement. Pretty interesting. I won't lie. Maybe you feel this way. It can be pretty discouraging, the times that we live in, the challenges that we face. I look at it from the church standpoint, and we see churches closing. They're telling us that in the next 20 years, we'll have 25 to 30% fewer congregations than we do today. That's discouraging. That's discouraging. We know personally people who, at one point in time, they were faithful in church, and now they've simply disappeared. We... We're living in a culture that has lost its collective mind. I've never been so happy for it to not be June anymore. 
I look around, I think, Lord, what's going on? Right? What in the world is happening, Lord? And in these moments of doubt, maybe you look around and, and sometimes that arises within you. You wonder, has God just washed his hands of the whole thing? I mean, has he just turned us over and, and, we'll, and we're left to figure it out on our own? Is that what's going on? But then I remember that God has already spoke to this. This is not new. This is not surprising. This is not to catch us unaware. In the same way that Peter realized that God had already spoke to the Holy Spirit coming in the book of Joel. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit. It all ties together. It's all confirmed by the Word of God. I look around the world and I say, oh, wait. God has already spoke to this. This isn't new. This isn't caught God unaware. God hasn't washed his hands. He's told us in advance of these times and seasons. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says, that means it can't be more clearer, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits in the teaching of demons. Uh, that doesn't mean that there are going to be idol worshipers who are in a pagan temple with statues. That doesn't mean that they're offering sacrifices on the altar of Molech. All this simply means is that there are people who are going to turn their back on the Christian faith and follow other deceptive practices that are inspired by the demonic. If you need help finding demonic inspirational practices today, turn on the news for a little while. They'll help you, okay? And there are people who are, who are going to turn from the Christian faith. We call those apostates. They say, I don't want anything to do with this gospel. I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. I don't want anything to do with this Bible. I don't want anything to do with this. And they're going to turn and follow worthless teachings, demonic spirits. And say, Pastor, are you saying somebody can lose their salvation? I'm saying they were never saved to begin with. I'm saying that these are people that Jesus talked about in the parable of soils. That seed that showed promise but got choked out when the cares of the world started to rise up around it. That's what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 24, the lips of Jesus, red letters in your Bible. Matthew 24 verses 10 through 11. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. He told us. He said, this is what's coming. Be ready. This is happening. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, my goodness, is this not going on? For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itchy ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Don't like what this church says? There's a lot that'll say things that you do like. I don't necessarily like that God has said this doesn't give me warm fuzzies, right? This isn't one of these encouraging passages that you think, man. But it sure is an answer. It sure does explain. It sure does offer insight into what in the world is happening in the church and in the world today. And so God has already spoke to this. And one thing about the Lord, God's truth is not concerned with how I feel about it. God's truth doesn't say, well, this, this doesn't matter because it offends Brian. Well, this says if Brian's bothered by it, he'd better get his life together. Because when I approach the Scripture, I don't approach the Scripture from a position of doubt. I approach the Scripture from a position of trust. And so when I read something in the Bible that, that rubs me the wrong way, it's not because the Bible's wrong, it's because I'm wrong. All the time. 
100% of the time. So I know that if God has already given us a heads up, then it changes how I should respond to it. One of my favorite movies of all time, it's appropriate for the 4th of July, The Patriot. Mel Gibson, uh, I love The Patriot. I'll watch, it, I'll watch it every day. It's my favorite movie. I can quote every line. But there, if you've never seen the movie, Mel Gibson plays the part of Benjamin Martin. Benjamin Martin is, the, is kind of the commander of the American militia during the Revolutionary War. He's kind of brought out of retirement to lead the militia. And one of the things Benjamin Martin does is that he proves to be an endless source of frustration to the British commanders because he engages in non-traditional warfare. He understands that if you go line up face to face with the Redcoats and you go, you go musket to musket with the Redcoats, you're not going to do too well. And so instead, Benjamin Martin engages in guerrilla warfare. He hides in the trees and they don't know how to respond to this. And so Martin understood how they fought. And because he understood how they fought, he sought to engage in a way that reflected that understanding. Listen, if we understand how the enemy fights today, if we understand what their goal is, if we understand what their objective is, then it changes our, how we react to it. It changes what we do. It changes our approach to it. So we understand that we live in a world that's flawed and fallen and is doing these things that we've already talked about. That changes how we react to it. And how we respond to it. And it changes that we don't just sit here and say, man, this world's awful. The church is suffering. People are not committed. And we sit back and woe is us. We knew this was coming. We knew this was happening. God's already told us that. And so if we knew God, what God says, we respond accordingly. Peter knew what Joel and David had said. And he was able then to speak to these people to remind them of something new. The church today has got to have that same level of confidence, and that confidence only comes from spending appropriate time in the Word, both personally and corporately. When we know what God has said, then we are equipped to speak to one another and to a world that's lost its way. The second thing we take away from this sermon, we need to make sure that we are pointing people to Jesus. It's good to have facts, but facts have got to have teeth, right? I mean, Peter could have just stood up, quoted Joel, and said, uh, said this is, this is, here's a verse. Here's what this verse means. You guys take it and enjoy it. I mean, he could have done that, but, but Peter calls for, for a radical response to it. Peter was called to be a witness, not a winner of Bible trivia. Sometimes we're really good at diagnosing a problem, but we're not too great at prescribing a cure. We can tell what's wrong with, with our neighbors. We can tell what's wrong with that family member that kind of gets on your nerves. We can point out and, and, and describe the issue, but we've got to also be able to prescribe the cure. It, it's, it's like this. You ever been to the doctor feeling miserable? And you go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at you and says, gosh, I hate it. I wish I didn't have to pay the copay when they said this. It's just a virus that'll have to run its course. If I don't walk out of there with drugs, you shouldn't get paid, right? <laughs> give, me this, give me the prescription. I mean, right? I pay you to diagnose me and make me better, not tell me it's just got to run its course. I could have done that at home. Dr. Google had already told me that. I don't need anybody to, here's $35, thank you for not doing anything. I mean, I could open a medical practice with that sort of, uh, sort of plan. Just come by, I'll tell you what it is. It's viral, it's got to run its course. 
How many times do you want to look at the doctor and say, I didn't come here for a diagnosis, I came here for a cure? I didn't come here for a just wait it out. Give me something. Give me stinking sugar pills or something, something to make me feel like I'm doing something. There's a lot that's wrong today. There's a lot. And we've gotten really good at pointing out what's wrong. We can call it. We can diagnose it. Sometimes it grates on our spine. But it's not enough to simply throw rocks at it. We've got to show and tell people that there is a better way. You see, Peter does not just give the problem. Peter gives the cure. He gives the whole gospel, not just part of it. You see, the Holy Spirit fire burns brightest when the whole gospel is presented. Peter calls out the sin, right? He tells this crowd of thousands, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was fighting words. This group of people in this, I mean, we're, we're just shy of a mob here. And he looks at this group of people and say, this Jesus who you crucified. How many of them look back and said, I didn't kill him. You can't accuse me of killing him. I didn't kill him. Jesus, Peter says, this Jesus who you crucified, his blood is on your hands. You knew who he was. You saw the works that he did, Peter says. You crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Imagine if somebody stood up and told you that. You'd get you'd start to get agitated. You'd start to get frustrated. And Peter tells him no in certain terms. You got to repent. What does it mean to say someone has to repent? It means they got to they got to have something to repent from, right? If the doctor looks at you and this is one of these times the doctor looks at you and he says you need to lose weight. What's the doctor actually saying? Come on. You're a little overweight. In the common vernacular, he's saying, you're fat. Right? If you need to repent, you are saying the backside of that is that you are a sinner and you are guilty of defying the law of God. Therefore, you need to repent. But it's not just a partial gospel. There's a whole gospel. And we need to understand that the gospel is very bad news before it's good news. And so often we only tell one side of the story. Our fundamentalist friends are quick to condemn the sinner. And sometimes we find ourselves in that camp, right? I mean, we can condemn all kinds of sinners. We see the rainbow flag hoisted up high over some government building or business and that righteous indignation burns within us, right? We were angry when we see that happen. And we'd want to tell them exactly what we think. Sometimes I think we believe that, that some folks are too far gone to be saved. That's that fundamentalist within us. But the liberals are quick to point to grace. It doesn't matter what you do. There's grace. It, it doesn't matter what you think. There's grace. There's grace upon grace. It's available for everybody regardless of what you believe. And, and we don't want to use that R word because that R word's offensive. That R word, repentance, means that there's something you've got to repent from and we don't want to offend. Come just as you are. You're free to stay that way. We'll affirm that's exactly how God made you to be. 
There's two sides there. There's law and there's grace. The gospel deals with both. You can't proclaim the whole gospel without proclaiming the reality of sin and the imminence of judgment. Listen, people need to be scared of a holy God. People need to be, be terrified of a God whose white-hot righteousness can strike the sinner dead in, the, in his tracks, right? I mean, you read the Bible, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of things God does in the Bible that you look at and say, man, I'm glad that wasn't me. At the same time, God is a God of, of, of incredible, immense love to the point that he poured out that judgment on his very own son so that we could experience his grace. And so the whole gospel deals with both. Sin is real. Repentance is required. And grace is abundant. God loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. We need to make sure that we're always pointing people to Jesus. How does Peter's sermon end? We don't have the exact words. Luke, of course, doesn't record them for us. He summarizes in verse 40. It says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. But how do they respond to Peter's words? In brokenness, in despair, what do we do? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I can't look at this text and not ask you the same question that's asked by this crowd. What shall you do? How shall we respond? What does Peter do? He looks at him and he says, this is what you should do. You need to repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Now be careful here because we don't believe that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Okay? There's people who weren't baptized who go to heaven. The thief on the cross is our great example. He was on the cross next to Jesus. He didn't have a chance to get baptized, but Jesus looked at him when he professed faith in Christ and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There are those in the Bible who were saved but never had the opportunity to be baptized. What is repentance? Repentance points to a change in our attitude about our sinfulness. It means that we no longer feel the way we felt about our sin and we're going to do everything in our power, trusting God's power to work in us, to turn from sin and walk in holiness and righteousness. That's what repentance truly means. And so if I'm repentant for my sin, I don't want to go down that pathway again. My heart is turned from it. I'm turned to the Lord. I've turned from sin. I don't want to go down that pathway again. I've repented from sin. But then he says, be baptized. I want to speak to this for a moment. Notice what this says. Also notice what it doesn't say. In response to the question, what shall we do? Peter does not say, repent or be baptized. Repent or be baptized. Peter does not say, repent by being baptized. You see, we get kind of off here, theologically speaking, when it comes to baptism. There are plenty of people who say that, that baptism is, is where salvation takes place. And so, repent or be baptized, meaning that one's a substitute for the other. 
I've met people, I've counseled with people, I've baptized people who go back to their childhood when they walked into the waters of a baptismal pool just like in front here at this church. And they've looked at their life, they look back at that event and say, that's where I was saved. If you are hanging your salvation on the trip through the water, you've missed it. It doesn't say repent or be baptized. Baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you from anything. If that is in your mind that baptism is where you were saved, and you were saved because you were baptized, you need to understand that baptism, apart from repentance, is not salvation. Baptism, apart from repentance, is not salvation. You got wet. You had an emotional experience, but you are no more saved by that experience than you would be by doing the hokey pokey on this stage this morning. It will not save you. The oldest person I ever baptized was 84 years old. She came to me and she said, I thought my whole life that when I got baptized as a kid that I was a Christian. And she said, that is not the case. And at 84 years old, she repented from that error, gave her, life, gave her life to Christ, and I baptized her in the swimming pool at the YMCA. It does not say repent by being baptized. Baptism is not connected to your repentance. Instead, it says repent and be baptized. That means that there are two actions that are appropriate and necessary responses to the gospel. There are two reactions that are appropriate to how you respond to the gospel. You repent from sin, meaning your, your heart towards your sin changes, and you trust in Christ. And then in reaction to your decision, you follow through with baptism. It is the norm across the history of the church that those who are in Christ are baptized. You read the Bible, people who get saved, what do they do? They respond with baptism. Baptism is an indication of one's faith in Jesus. It is not a requirement for one's faith in Jesus. It is the most basic, simple work that one can do that demonstrates one's faith in Jesus. Some of you are here today, and you need to get this right. Either A, you have stumbled into the error of thinking that when you were a kid you got baptized, and that means you've got your ticket stamped. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, repenting from sin and trusting Christ as Savior and Lord, your baptism did not save you from anything. You need to repent from that and trust Jesus. There are others here today who do have faith in Jesus. They've given their life to Christ. They trust Christ. They, they believe him as Savior and Lord. They understand his death, burial, resurrection, that he took their place on the cross. They understand that he's coming again, but for whatever reason, they have walked away from being willing to follow Christ in baptism. Some of you here today fall into that category. You need to get that right. You need to be baptized as soon as possible, not because it's going to get you into heaven, because it's a declaration that your ticket's already been punched. It's a public display of an inward profession of faith that Christians throughout time and history have all followed through with. Here's the thing, church. In this room, we're really no different than Peter. Blue-collared man with a story to tell, set on fire by the Holy Spirit. That's who Peter was. Not seminary trained, not highly educated, just a blue-collar guy with a story to tell. 
And church history has been filled with people just like that, that God used in remarkable, incredible ways. Ordinary people on fire by the Holy Spirit with a story to tell and a scripture to share. In 1935, Blasio Kagosi was a school teacher in Rwanda. He was discouraged by the lack of faith, uh, lack of life in the church, and just powerlessness in his own Christian experience. Reading through the book of Acts and scriptures, he decided to follow the example of these first Christians, shut himself in his house for a week, spent that week in prayer and fasting. After the week he came out of his home a changed man, he confessed his sin to those whom he had wronged, including his wife, his children. He proclaimed the gospel in the school where he taught, and revival broke out there, resulting in students and teachers being saved. They were called abaka, which means people on fire. Shortly after that, Blasio was invited to Uganda to share with the leaders of the Anglican church there. And he called the leaders of the church to repent, and as he did, the fire of the Holy Spirit descended again on that place with similar results as what had happened in Rwanda. Several days later, after his trip to Uganda, he died from a fever. He only had a ministry of just a few weeks. But his few weeks of obedience, sparked by his willingness to follow Christ, by his dedication to the things of God, his ministry swept through East Africa, and the work that he started continues to be present to this day. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been transformed over the decades through the work of this East African revival that was started by a school teacher who was tired of insignificance. All because of a discouraged Christian setting himself apart to seek the fire of God's Spirit. What would happen with our resources, with the tools at our disposal, ordinary people, ordinary men and women, if we just decided it's time for more. It's time for more. I don't like the complacent world in which we live. I'm going to tell you, Walker County, Catoosa County, Dade County, some of these people here are some of the hardest folks in the world to reach. You know why? Because they're trusting in a baptism or they're trusting in a vacation Bible school experience 50, 60 years ago. And they think they're fine. They know enough to be dangerous. But you look at lives and there's no fruit. There's no fire. No passion. What would it take to see the fire of God's Spirit burn through our churches and our communities and truly transformed the hearts and truly transformed the minds. If almost a hundred years later, a revival in East Africa still has consequences, what would it look like in our own community if God did it again? Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm grateful for your word, which speaks to us and challenges us where we are. Thank you, Lord, that you were not silent. You've told us what's going on in our communities and in our churches. You've warned us. 
And so, God, I pray that we as your people would not grow tired and weary of doing your work. But like this Rwandan school teacher who just grew weary, who just grew tired of the complacency, that if we would seek your face, would come after you, desperate to see you move again in our midst. Lord, you've warned us that there will come a time where there will be those who fall away. But even in that, let us not lose sight of those who've never followed Christ. Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, that if there's any today that need to give their life to Jesus, maybe they're trusting in a baptism, or they're trusting in a vacation Bible school, or they're trusting in, a, in a, that time they walk down front with their friend. It's not saying, Lord, that those aren't means that you use. But praying at this altar won't save anybody. Going under those waters won't save anybody. Only true faith in Jesus. Repentance from sin. So maybe there's some here today that in these next few moments, the fire of the Holy Spirit might burn in their heart and say, you know what, Pastor, I've been trusting in the wrong thing and I've never trusted Christ. God, would you begin revival in our midst by truly changing somebody's heart? Maybe there's some here today that they love you, they know the truth about you, They've committed their lives to following you, but they've never taken the step of obedience in following you through baptism. Not because it saves them, but because it shows their true love and affection for you and obedience to you. And so, God, if there's any here today that that's a decision that needs to be made, Lord, I pray that, that we'd have to fill the tub up and see those waters stir again as men and women pursue you in obedience. Again, Lord, I'm grateful for your word, for that first sermon preached, for how it touches us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.